This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. A lot of folks, us included, are thinking about what it's going to take to get back to the office. We're hearing that a lot here in the tri-state area. I mentioned a few minutes ago that New York City is starting to reopen as of next Monday. Neighboring Connecticut is also thinking about this a lot. Let's get into that with Dr. Eric Schott. He is the founder and CEO of Semaphore. He joins us on the phone from Connecticut. And Dr. Schott, it's really nice to to talk to you. I'm fascinated by your background and your experience in, in both the clinical and research is also and also the commercial. Help us understand what back-to-work testing looks like, especially when you're looking at Connecticut. Yeah, well, great to, great to be on. So what it looks like is we need a more holistic solution, not just focused on testing, but really seeking to understand the context in which each employee is existing, like whether they have symptoms or not, who they're being exposed to, and so on, in addition to the testing. And we kind of wrap that all together to provide guidance to employers on whether a given employee is uh, you know, low enough risk and not testing as positive and should be uh, allowed no problem back into work versus somebody at high risk uh, and maybe should not be coming in, should stay remote. So this is what you guys are doing, and I'm reading something from the Stanford Advocate. I mean, you guys are increasing the capacity for your new coronavirus testing program to at least 10,000 tests daily, up to 20,000. And we're talking about the test of whether or not you've got the virus, but also antibody testing, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And a lot of that volume driven by, you know, us, uh, you know, working with the state of Connecticut, Governor Lamont, and the progressive strategy they have to really, uh, you know, get people back uh, to work. So proud to be uh, helping those guys along. And so, I mean, I guess, and, and I love the fact that you're looking at it very holistically. Uh, Eric, I mean, just as, as sort of rank-and-file employees and, you know, folks who are commuting and, and things like that, as, as human beings and, and obviously folks who have ex- pre-existing conditions and are more at risk, I think there's a def- different set of, of circumstances. But what should the everyday person who's thinking about their office be is there sort of a checklist that we should be thinking about in terms of our own uh, thresholds and our own sense of safety? Yeah, in fact, it's interesting. In the dozens of employers we've talked to about these go-back-to-work strategies and use of testing, a lot of this is employee-driven, like the employee wanting to understand how safe are they going to be at the workplace, are they going to be exposed, are they going to carry something back to the household where right. they may have vulnerable Others said, so we're seeing a lot of this driven by the employees. Some of the employers, like they need uh, individuals back to be productive. They want them back in the workplace. And so what we're seeing is the um, employees really saying, well, we'll make us safe if we do that. So there are a bunch of guidelines uh, to the employers about how to you know, maintain social distancing within the workplace and so on. 
Um, there's the kind of symptom tracking that you want uh, individuals coming in to, to be taking, so, so increase awareness in the employee on whether they're, you know, they're not feeling well or they've been exposed outside of the work environment. All of that uh, through the kind of digital engagement we have can be reported and cataloged and used to uh, assess risk in addition to the testing. So again, it's, it's trying to cover as many variables as possible while uh, once you're in the work environment, again, main, you know, just smart, maintaining social yeah. distancing, wearing a mask if you're in public areas or exposed to other individuals and so on. And I want to press you on one point because you brought it up, and I think it's so important, which is this idea that if someone – and I certainly trust my employer. I work for a great company, and I'm not just saying that because I'm on its air. But you know, the thing that I think many people worry about is exactly what you said, the sort of inadvertently bringing, bringing something home. And is that just something – is that a risk we're just going to have to live with? And how much of this goes down to kind of that individual responsibility and, and maybe the in-between things that are happening? between work and, and the workplace and, and vice versa? Yeah, it's, it's a bit complicated because it has to take into account, you know, to, to what extent does an employer actually need you working in the office? Mm. So one of the things we do with the employer groups is assessing, helping them assess, is an employee really needed uh, to come back in or can they uh, be remote? And if they fall into higher risk categories, i.e. they have uh, individuals at home who are more vulnerable, elderly, uh, elderly uh, parents living with them, uh, immune-compromised individuals, and so on. So that's number one. Number two is age. Age plays a significant role in, in uh, the severity of response you may undergo if you get infected. So all of those parameters are, are taken into account. Education is a key part of this, and it's helping everybody understand the risk to what extent are they needed in the office, to what extent can they remain remote, and based on those, you know, various thresholds are set for the different risk groups. Our guest at this hour, Dr. Eric Schott, founder and CEO at Semaphore, a patient-centric predictive health company. He's also Dean for Precision Medicine and Mount Sinai Professor in Predictive Health and Computation Biology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. As we'd said, He's had lots of education and lots of schooling. Um, Dr. Schott, it is nice to have you here with us. And you're talking about, you know, the work that you guys are doing at Semaphore with the state of Connecticut in terms of providing more access and more testing. Given your druthers, would you, as a member of the medical community, prefer that people ultimately just stay home a little longer? Yeah, I think we're seeing, uh, you know, we're already seeing that some of the timelines on when when uh, governments wanted to see people back to work and people wanting to be back to work, uh, that kind of getting delayed, let things ride out a little longer. The you know the numbers are definitely going down, but I do ultimately think that testing is sort of a core part of uh, a key part of evidence, along with other parameters that sort of assess whether somebody does have active infection or whether they've been infected and may be immune. And Dr. Schott, you know, I know that this is top of mind for you because you have been involved in the, in the collection of a lot of very sensitive data. How do we protect privacy amid all of this? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the digital uh, solution we sort of provide to an employer that includes both an employer portal where they can upload who, what employees do they want to have back in the workplace, so who's eligible. And then for the employee, employee portals that we engage in clinical testing all the time. So this technology that keeps, you know, we're dealing with HIPAA 
uh, personal, personally identifiable health information, like all of that. We use state-of-the-art, um, you know, encryption technologies and so on. And many of the employers, like once these tests are run on employees, whether they're positive or negative, um, you know, the employers often don't want to see that information. They don't want to take in, uh, you know, what's medically happening to the individual. So we have the ability to shield that information, to guide uh, employees who test as positive into the right channels of care. So it's employing the same kinds of techniques and technologies that we employ in clinical medicine uh, to, to, to perform this kind of testing. I do feel like, you know, Dr. Schott, that we have been talking about disrupting the medical community for a long time, and I feel like it's been resistant for many different reasons. But I do feel like what's happened with COVID-19 is, is revealing that we really need to change how we do things. And unfortunately, as a result of that, we are going to be giving up more data and there's going to be more sharing of data and there's going to have to be data pools. Is that just kind of our new reality? Yeah, Carol, I, I think you've hit it exactly on the head. Like this is going to be a transformational event that way. Like there's going to be much more remote monitoring of patients and engagements remotely, a lot more information being transmitted uh, digitally that way. I think increasingly patients and consumers more generally becoming more comfortable that um, sharing that kind of information, having more information collected on them will have lots of benefits. So there's kind of that risk uh, benefit ratio that uh, employee, you know, employees, consumers always have in mind. And so I think, yeah, we'll gravitate towards a new equilibrium that I think will have us, um, you know, tolerating higher risk and, and maybe greater privacy risk violations and trade for uh, ensuring we stay healthier and don't bring bad stuff into the home. Last question for you before you let you go. What do you worry about the most in terms of back to work? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, having a holistic enough solution that well enough characterizes what's happening in an individual and what is their risk profile really as we start getting into different types of sample collection to make it more convenient, whether it's saliva and at-home collections, mm -hmm. you know, are those sensitivity and specificity of the test, are they going to be as accurate? So we're like a lot of energy being spent, uh, both with the state of Connecticut and all the testing we're doing to assess all of those different parameters to, to you know, we're all learning together. We have to yeah. adapt and as we learn and, and uh, you know, but yeah, it's that we'd be accurate enough, I guess would be my... No, I think that I think that's exactly right. I mean, we had a great story a few weeks ago. A colleague of ours in London uh, did about getting four tests, and and essentially two of them were negative, two of them were positive, and so you do wonder about the accuracy, and that ultimately will make a, a huge difference. Our thanks to Dr. Eric Schott, founder CEO of Semaphore, joining us on the phone from Stanford, Connecticut. They are working with the state, Carol, to get that state. Uh, back to work, yeah. and I, I I take his point at the end there. It's a really important one because the the data are only good if they're real and true, right? Correct, and it needs to be consistent. We've talked yeah. about this that if everybody's doing kind of their own thing and there's no consistency in terms of collection, and then you know how you look at it, it's and not going to be ultimately yeah. useful in the end. So really, really important. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. 
on Bloomberg Radio. Well, among our most read stories on the Bloomberg today is one in the magazine this week. It's about how a decade of progress for women has evaporated overnight because of the pandemic. It was one of those stories we were talking about on our planning call this morning. The story by Shelley Banjo, Bloomberg News is a technology reporter. She joins us. Uh, hang on a second. Lost my place. She is our senior writer. Forgive me. Shelley, Shelley Banjo is our senior writer at Bloomberg News. Wanted to get her title correctly. On the phone from Dallas, Texas, she joins us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the phone in Brooklyn. And Joel, I mean, it's a special magazine this week in terms of what you guys are doing. What I love about this story is that you really dig into what's going on, telling the story, uh, the numbers, the stories that really give us an idea of how the pandemic specifically is impacting women. Uh, yeah, I mean, every issue is special, <laughs> Carol. Yeah, but, uh, true. You know, this is one of the stories that the moment um, we started talking about it, I just said this is supremely important. And, you know, it's been sort of bubbling for a second. Like, we've seen some of these numbers come out. But this was the first time that we actually really managed to put them all in one place to get a sense of just how dramatic this moment is for women specifically who have basically shouldered the burden of the pandemic in a way that um, that men haven't. Um, Shelley, as you did your reporting, what were the numbers that really jumped out to you? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, the first thing is definitely the job losses. Uh, you know, a lot of times we compare this to what happened in 2008, and a lot of those sectors that were most hard hit were things like housing, um, construction areas where a lot of men were. And this time around, it's the complete flip. It's, it's um, areas where, where women are. So that 55% of the job losses, um, you know, was a big one for me. And the other number that really stood out to me was just the sheer number of women that are breadwinners in their family. I guess I just didn't really quite realize, um, you know, how much, how much that was. And... How much of this, Shelley? I mean, this was a, a stunning story in, in, in many ways, although, as both Carol and, and Joel have said, it was one of these things that probably, if you think about it, was, was hiding in plain sight. I, I mean, to me, one of the most troubling aspects of it is that it's going to be really, it's going to be a slow slog back to even where we were, much less real progress. Talk to. Uh, Talk to us about that and, and sort of how this may – how hard it may be to, to really reverse this. And, and, Jason, one thing to add just there is that last year women made up the majority of the U.S. workforce right. for almost the first time in a decade, right? Shelley, like just add, think about that in context as you, as you sort of respond to that. That's exactly right. I mean, I think your point on hiding in plain sight is a good one because a lot of these things you don't see. I mean, you don't see the hours um, that women are necessarily staying up later at night to, to finish and this kind of burnout potential of, you know, I finish uh, my work for the day and then I'm with my kids and then I'm signing on again to work until 2 o'clock in the morning. And those are the type of kind of burnout that, that starts to um that starts to really weigh on people, um, and, and, and I think that could, you know, have some bigger, longer-term implications. Um, you look at all the women that are just kind of bowing out of the workforce, taking leave, taking parental leave. Now, um, that's going to impact longer-term uh, longer-term earnings and income for women. Um, and then you look at a, a lot of women that have no choice, like they they are single women who 
um, you know, provide everything for their family. And so they have no choice but to work. And so for them, that means putting their kids in a lot of precarious and unsafe um, situations. You know, what's interesting, Shelley, and I think, Jason, back to some of the early conversations we had once we went into, you know, working from home, is that folks thought, you know, this might be helpful to women in giving them more flexibility in terms of working operations because everybody was at home. We were realizing it was working more effectively than I think anybody imagined and thought that this might be a boon for women. And it's interesting to see how it's playing out ultimately. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, working from home does save you some time in terms of commute and things like that. Um, But you can't do two things at once. You can't Mm -hmm. both you know, breastfeed a child and uh, lead a conference call, which, though so I have seen that before. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's, you can't do two things at the same time. You can't be two places at once. And so kids, some, um, you know, I think it sums up in my fir- in the very first line of the story, which is the reality of the pandemic is someone has to stay with the kids. And so as long as you have kids, someone has to watch them. And in most cases, that's ending up on the women. And what that means is then they can't do their jobs. And so, you know, to me, the frustrating part of this companies are saying, yeah, we're trying to be um, we're trying to be uh, understanding of this. But but really, you know, I think it takes some greater policies. And so that's something I thought was very interesting um, from some of the um, think tanks that I spoke to, which said, you know, this is really a moment where we can either take what's happened and make things worse, or we can take what's happened and make things better and institutionalize some of these things that we've started to do around uh, working from home and paid sick leave and um, some of these temporary provisions that have been written in for workers right now and think, you know, how can we actually turn these into long-term solutions? Because what the pandemic unveiled was, you know, we don't have this kind of safety net written into um, uh, the government, into laws, into uh, the way companies work and uh, across the board. And so, you know, where can we, what can we learn from this? What can we take away and, and how can we emerge from this better? It also revealed, uh, speaking from personal experience here, uh, the importance of school where you can put kids and, and then actually, you know, go do your job. Um, and, and you but, you know, just continuing that thought that you had there, Shelley, about what employers are, are are doing and can doing. Like, what did you? What else did you learn about? Um, um, you know, most effective policies that employers are using during this time. I think having a policy is effective. So a lot of companies have said, you know, what we're behind our our employees. Well, we're going to make. Um, we're going to make adjustments. But what I found from talking to a lot of these women are, I don't want to ask for an adjustment. I don't want to ask for a special treatment just because I have to take care of, of my kids. It's a bad economic time. People are worried that their job prospects are shaky or that their next um, you know, uh, promotion might not be there if they're the ones who had to say, oh, you know what, during this time, I actually need you to, to give me a break a little bit. Because for every person who might need a break right now, there are people who don't necessarily have the same kind of caregiving responsibilities that others have. And so um, I think having a policy in place is something that makes it, um, you know, streamlines the situation a little right. easier for, for people to take. And I think, you know, I'm hearing, too, from a lot of folks that those policies need to be very clear, concise, understood, and really written out so that people understand truly, you know, what a company is okay with them and doing without on, any repercussions. Exactly. Followed up on and enforced and enforced fairly, yeah. I, I think, is, uh, is a really important uh, point. This is a great story.
Yeah, I think it's really important. And I love, I mean, uh, I'm going to put it out on Twitter because the numbers in it to really tell you what's going on right now, uh, and, and in particular, um, the disproportionate impact that uh, women are seeing. Shelly Banjo, she is senior writer at Bloomberg News. She joined us on the phone from Dallas, Texas, along with Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote line from Brooklyn. Check out that story in the issue. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's talk a little Business Week economics. We talked about this story a little bit. We teed it up, I think, <clears throat> rather nicely for our next guest, Yelena Shalecheva. She's quoted in the story that is one of the most read on the Bloomberg, and it's all about what may happen next when it comes to who may lose their jobs in the aftermath of this pandemic. She, of course, is senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us on the phone from Long Island. And Yelena, I have to say, you know, reading this research and understanding the data that you and your team collected, it is troubling for a lot of our audience in many ways, who I think was probably able to say, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm not an hourly restaurant worker. I don't work in retail. This is going to be much more widespread. And as this continues, we're talking about a lot of higher paying white collar jobs. Right. Uh, and I think the key point here is that uh, a lot of white collar jobs and a lot of jobs in adjacent industries to those that were hit very hard in the first wave of layoffs are still at risk. So even though we saw uh, a better than expected number in terms of ADP payrolls uh, this morning, uh, another report from uh, non-manufacturing ISM uh, services suggested that uh, things are really not improving that well. And uh, the employment component of the survey uh, was uh, still at a very low level. So that tells me that maybe this optimism uh, about how quickly the job market is going to improve is a little bit premature. You know what? Can I just say, Elena, it reminds me of like using the um, SPLC function on the Bloomberg, the supply chain analysis, right? Like you you look at a company, but you've got to look who do they buy from, who do they sell from, right? Whenever there's a story, it's so much more, you know, wide reaching than just one entity. And that's what this is, right? You know, that if, you know, restaurants are hit, well, there's a whole supply chain and it includes technology, you know, workers, it includes uh, healthcare, education. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it so what we did uh, what our team did in terms of the analysis we looked at uh, input output tables from uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis to kind of trace the linkages between uh, different industries so let me give you another example so uh, uh, a real estate lessor somebody who rents out those um, uh, big retail spaces they are in danger basically because a lot of stores are closing and maybe they're closing permanently. So these companies uh, are at risk of losing jobs. So what we did, we tried to estimate across the whole economy uh, how many more industries are in danger uh, because uh, of that first wave of layoffs that we uh, saw back in March and April. And our estimates suggest that uh, as uh, many as 6 million uh, jobs are in danger because of um, this potential layoffs in adjacent industries, 
and also because white-collar jobs are now at risk, uh, given that uh, a lot of frontline workers lost their jobs, and they might not be coming back. Well, that whole notion of coming back, I guess, Yelena, I want to just emphasize that point because one of the things that's given, I think, a lot of people comfort so far, and and I'm sorry to dwell on this maybe, but I think it's so important, is this idea of like, oh, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. And, and I do feel like we're starting to get a sense that some of these jobs, especially the ones you're talking about, don't so easily uh, come back. It, is there a delineation that, that you make between sort of that first wave and second wave? Can you quantify how likely it is in the snapback? It's very difficult. And, of course, there are a lot of uh, different factors around it. So, yes, things may turn really great, and uh, all of a sudden everybody rebounds in terms of uh, growth and uh, in terms of uh, jobs. But I, I think it's very unlikely. And uh, even though we we have seen a lot of optimistic signs, say, coming from auto sales report mm. we saw yesterday, it was better than expected. Uh, another report this morning, ADP was better than expected. There's uh, a lot of uh, this, um, you know, setbacks in terms of how much demand we will have uh, in the industry, in the economy. Uh, on the part of consumers, on the part of other industries, right? that might not be coming back uh, in a V-shaped form. Well, and you do wonder, I think, Jason, I hearken back to our conversation with Margaret Keene of Synchrony Financial, which is a BW Talks in the magazine this week, but who talked about, you know, people who had asked for more time to pay off some of those store credit cards, about 75% of them said, you know, we don't need these deferrals anymore, but... They are paying down debt. And, you know, that also goes to if you're a little bit nervous about what the outlook is, you may not do any new spending. You're going to you know, try and kind of shore up your financials. Uh, and what's interesting is one of the data points, more than a, one third of households making $100,000 per year have lost some employment income since mid-March. And, and some of them, the statistics show, they're worried about, you know, making next month's rent or paying the mortgage. So, you know, it's it's really hitting all you know aspects of uh, the income spectrum. All right, Yelena Shalecheva, thank you so much, and you're an economist for Bloomberg Economics. Uh, a really nice uh, one-two punch, as it were, between yeah. our Bloomberg Economics team and our Bloomberg News team, really synthesizing some great data that Yelena and her group put together. And it's all about white-collar jobs not being safe from this pandemic uh, that continues to really wreak havoc, not just from a health perspective, but from an economic perspective as well, Carol. And and you also start to think about it in the context of the civil unrest that we're going through and everything going on there that's yeah, also snowballs. laying bare mm -hmm. uh, some really, really tough economic truths. We're going to talk about that next hour. Nothing makes people feel more desperate than financial troubles, right? And either not having enough money to support your family, take care of your family, feed your family, keep a roof over your head. And, you know, it's things that certain aspects of our society have dealt with for a long time, but it's certainly hitting a lot more uh, today. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. In our weekly Bloomberg Green segment, Jason, today, investors are focusing on an interesting idea that we need to think of cars as more than just an automobile to keep selling them in a post-COVID-19 future. 
provocative. So let's get more on this from Emily Chasen. She is sustainability editor at Bloomberg News, and she joins us on the phone in New York City. Emily, good to have you back with us. So tell us about this this story. Yeah, so what we're seeing, um, thanks for having me back, by the way, is what we're seeing is that people are coming out of COVID all over the world, and they're a little bit nervous about using public transportation. So they're, what they're doing is they're looking at cars again, and then but you haven't been using your car for a while, so you might not buy a new one, right? And before this, everybody wanted people to switch to electric vehicles. Um, automakers have a lot of models that are coming out. Um, there's low inventory. Um, so people are still buying electric vehicles all over the world, um, probably because they were still on a wait list. It took months to get off. But, um, yeah, I guess electric vehicles have this optionality to them where they can be more than just a car for people. They can hook up to the electric grid. There's all sorts of software they use. There's the autonomous vehicle stuff. So you could actually think of your car as having an additional value proposition in the future um, if it's an electric car. And people are sort of trying to unpack that and what that looks like and what kind of future that could make for automakers. Well, and it's interesting to, to think about, too, Emily, and, and this is an area very familiar to you. It's, th- there's also an element, at least there has been so far, that, you know, buying an electric car sort of says something about you. You know, it sort of says something about who you want to be. And I do wonder, from a lifestyle perspective, how that has changed in, in your estimation, not just in terms of the dollars and cents of buying a car and some of the infrastructure, but also uh, about the, the maybe the, the softer side or the, the harder to quantify side of this. Yeah, well, people were looking to buy electric cars, um, probably still were. Um, so it was sort of a luxury good, right? But today, I think Mary Nichols out in California, who heads the California Air Resources Board, said they want to make the whole state in California electric vehicles only by 2030. So mm. electric vehicles are not going to be so rare anymore as they were in the past, which means there's a whole infrastructure around electric cars that really needs to be created right now. Um, our charging infrastructure is not there yet throughout the U.S. Um, the battery replacement structure is not there, battery recycling. Um, there's a whole system that needs to be created, but there's a lot of cool opportunities. I talked to this investor who said, you know, like you could think about your electric car serving another purpose. It could be a generator for your house. Like there's a whole potential to have five days of power from your house, um, from your car. You could plug your car into your house in the future. Um, and that's not really available yet, but um, automakers are looking at it. Yeah, I also do wonder how public policy or government policy can play into this again. We know that when you get, you know, incentives, I mean, we replaced some windows on our house years ago because we got a break because they were going to be, you know, better insulated and so on and so forth. Like, I just do think about how government policy, whether it's a tax break or something, can really induce people to do things. And I wonder if what you're hearing is we're going to need a little bit more of this going forward. And actually, though, can government afford it after some of the spending that they've had to do because of the shutdowns uh, caused by the virus and and, uh, other well, electric car incentives are going to be really powerful going forward. We saw that, like, where electric car sales collapsed in COVID, um, there weren't as many strong subsidies as there were in other places. So where car sales, electric car sales continued in COVID, um, there were strong subsidies. Um, so we're probably going to need more of that, especially because all the automakers have a lot of extra supply. They haven't been selling that many cars lately. They're going to lower their prices. So electric cars are usually more expensive, and they're going to have to try extra hard to compete. So you're going to need those incentives. Cities, though, might actually be incentivized to do it because they don't want all these people coming in their cars and creating extra air pollution, which we know is a problem for COVID um, and lots of other things. Um, right. So electric cars, they, they may find reason to do it, or they may even find sort of a, a carbon tax incentive. 
All right, Emily Chasen, thank you so much. Our sustainability editor for Bloomberg joining us on the phone. Uh, how to make your electric car more than a car. I think people think about this a, a lot. I mean, even just looking at my neighborhood and sort of seeing, you know, when people buy new cars, they're, they're definitely thinking more about it. We've been talking about it. I, I mean, I know you're waiting for the electric station wagon because you're a wagonista. But, but, we, uh, do, but we talk about it a lot, too. Yeah. And, you know, who, you know, who were, you know, kind of waiting to do something um, so that it makes sense. Would you buy a Tesla? I don't know if I would. Yeah. I don't know. We've definitely talked about it. Um, and I know your dad has one. Yep. True. Um, and I know loves it. And I know everybody who has one loves it. I think, you know, we need to make sure that there are the charging stations that are around. Yeah. Um, you really have to have the infrastructure to make it work. But I really do think, and I do wonder, is electric vehicles the ultimate answer? Because you still have those batteries you've got to deal with, right? Yeah, true. And I just, true. I, and I you've mean, got power facilities right. that have to charge the batteries. And I don't know if that's ultimately the answer. So you just want cars that run on magic? Is that yeah. what you're going for? <laughs> like I've they got to run on something. I've been talking to Walt Disney, and they've got some fairy dust that can. Bob Iger, in his role as executive chairman, is going to Bob just Iger can solve some everything. Magic cars <laughs> that don't run on anything; they just run on pixie dust, hydrocarbon, water. Like, wouldn't that be great? That Solar be great. using the yeah. sun. Like, there's just I just think we haven't pushed it and maybe we need a global collaboration of people really trying to kind of push the envelope stop laughing at me jason <laughs> kelly i'm laughing at you i full confession pixie dust. Pixie i'm dust. laughing at you it's pixie dust carol master pulls up in her pixie dust car <laughs> anyway i'm driving in my car i turn on the radio how about you let me drive oh no 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 who's gonna drive you home Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right. Well, as we head to another green close, it's become a bit of a habit lately. Let's check in with Michael Sheldon, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer for Hightower RDM Financial Group. Joining us on the phone from Westport, Michael, nice to have you back with us. Uh, I trust all is well over there in Connecticut. Yeah, so far so good. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, hearing a little bit more about reopening plans. We had a doctor on earlier who based out near you, a little down down, uh, down the coast from you in, uh, in Stanford, you know, talking about some pretty aggressive testing uh, that's going to go on. And, and we've heard a lot from your governor about what reopening looks like from where you are. What does reopening uh, look like for Connecticut? Well, I think all the states are sort of in the same boat. Uh, I think the governors are looking at they want to see less cases going on. They want to see less people in hospitals. They want to see less mortality, less people dying, obviously, from this. Uh, they want to see some improvement. And I think generally in Connecticut was one of the first states to get hard hit, and especially Westport and Fairfield County, where I am. And we've definitely seen some improvement, which uh, is a positive sign looking ahead. And sort of sort of bringing that towards the markets, uh, I wanted to start off by saying that there's an old saying in the markets, uh, which used to be, don't fight the Fed. Mm. And I think the new saying now is, don't fight the Fed in Congress. Together, the Fed and Congress have basically spent about 6 to $7 trillion over the past couple of months. And they're, what they, they spent that money to temporarily replace the lost income 
from slowing down and shutting down the economy due to COVID-19. And now we're starting to see, as the economy starts to open up, we're starting to see some improvement, which is now reflected in the equity markets. I feel like it's also, Michael, you know, don't fed, don't fight um, Germany, don't fight the ECB. You know, there's a headline that just crossed uh, Angela Merkel's coalition reaching a deal on a German stimulus package. If one thing investors can kind of count on right now is that leaders, central banks, they're going to do what they need to do to make sure everything financially continues to, to work and move smoothly. And that usually means pumping a lot of money into the system to make sure that there's no credit crunches or liquidity squeezes. Yeah, I think you're right. Central banks around the world have definitely coordinated and they've pumped money into the economy. In the United States, talking about liquidity, for example, uh, when the Federal Reserve rolled out its plan to actually start purchasing corporate bonds both in the primary and secondary market uh, a few weeks ago, I thought to me that was a bit of a game changer because the credit markets were really becoming unglued. And just before the Fed even bought any uh, corporate bonds, which they started just a week or two ago, they basically told the markets that they're going to do, it was sort of their Mario Draghi moment where they said, we're going to do whatever it takes. And that, that announcement by the Federal Reserve a few weeks ago basically started to free up the credit markets, and you need a, a functioning credit market for the economy to function. So what do you worry the most about here, Michael? Well, I think there are a number of concerns we have right now. One is China-U.S. relations seem to be getting worse after yeah. starting to get better last year. Uh, we have rising debt levels. Debt levels are rising uh, very quickly as a result of all the spending going on. We don't think that's a problem for right now because it's so inexpensive to finance all this debt. But, but down the road, we may certainly face higher taxes. Uh, we have the upcoming election this fall, which will bring some uncertainty. And then uh, there's obviously concerns about the strength of the recovery, how long, it will how long it will take to replace all the jobs that have been lost. And then there's also the fear as we go into the fall that COVID-19 could make a return later this year. That's what I worry about, though, um, certainly the, the virus coming back. But I do wonder about labor dislocations of, you know, temporary workers losing jobs and those temporary job cuts become permanent. And we just did a story. We talked with our Bloomberg um, economics team, Yelena Shalaitova, our senior U.S. economist, you know, that it's not just blue collar. Now we're looking at another wave that will start to impact blue, uh, white collar jobs as well, right? Like it's just a reminder that when there's a slowdown in the economy, it's not just one entity, one industry, one company that gets impacted. It's their whole, su whole supply chain, who they sell to, who they buy to. Yeah, I think it'll be, it'll be very interesting. We get the monthly jobs report coming out this Friday, mm -hmm. and the numbers they're expecting right now are once again going to be sky high. They're expecting a decline of about another 8 million workers and the unemployment rate at 19.8%. But I think one of the key things going forward is when we had the last jobs number, the last jobs report, I think the number was something like 75, or 85, 80, 75 to 80% of all the workers said that their jobs had just been temporarily right. downsized. So if those jobs do, in fact, if those furloughed workers do eventually come back in the not-too-distant future, I think that would certainly set the stage for a more robust pickup in the economy and consumer sentiment and consumer spending. So that, that, but the job market is definitely something that needs to be watched over time. And, and so just to, to press that point a little bit, Michael, the, the job picture, you know, we saw ADP numbers today, we see jobless claims tomorrow, and as you say, we see the monthly jobs report on Friday. Like, what's the, what's the number amid all of that, you know, or even a specific data point within one of those reports that you're most 
uh, focused on seeing? Well, I think it's important that in general, we, uh, economic data has been trending higher. So yeah. it's not the absolute level that investors are watching. It's the rate of change. And that rate of change is starting to get better. Weekly jobless claims have now declined for eight consecutive weeks. And there were still over 2 million last week, which is an incredibly high number historically. But the trend is definitely uh, positive. And you're seeing that in other areas like auto sales, for example, which rose from about 8.5 to 12 million units yesterday. The ISM services index rose from about 41 to 45. So you're seeing a number of economic statistics either getting less worse or starting to get better. Uh, but jobs will definitely be important. It, it could very well take several quarters or two or three years until we make back the majority of the, the jobs that were lost over the past several months. Michael, the jump uh, back that we've seen in stocks, um, the bounce back, we're up about 40% on the S&P 500. We're still off our highs, but we're uh, still down about 3% so far uh, to date. Makes sense to you so far, or is, do you think the equity markets are getting ahead of them? And just got about 30 seconds here. Sure. Well, looking at valuation right now, the S&P is trading at about 24 times this year's numbers and 20 times next year's numbers. So a lot of good news has certainly been, been priced in. I think as long as the direction of the economy continues to improve in the months ahead, I think the benefit of the doubt will be towards higher equity markets, but it won't be in a straight line. All right. Michael Sheldon, thank you so much. Good to catch up with you as always. Michael Sheldon is the Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer of Hightower RDM Financial Group, joining us on the phone from Westport. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.